Support for OPB comes from our members and from our sponsors, like Mike Rosenberg from Columbia Credit Union. Mike says they trust what they see and hear on OPB, and that aligns with Columbia Credit Union's brand. This is Think Out Loud on OPB. I'm Dave Miller. LGBTQ pride events in small communities across the Pacific Northwest have been disrupted this summer by masked protesters touting extreme right-wing views. OPB's Jonathan Levinson has been looking into this. He has found that there's been a coordinated effort by a new coalition of groups espousing neo-Nazi and white supremacist beliefs. He joins us now with the details. Jonathan, welcome back. Hey, Dave. I want to start with one particular Pride event that was targeted by neo-Nazi groups. What happened recently in Oregon City? Uh, A group called Rose City Nationalists showed up to protest their Pride Festival in Oregon City. This is a group that started sometime last spring or summer, and they are unabashed racists, right? In their online chats, they embrace Nazi imagery and ideology. They rail against immigrants and the LGBTQ community and Jewish people. Uh, in Oregon City, they showed up in front of the Oregon City Children's Theater. That's a small venue which was initially slated to hold the event. They changed locations at the last minute because of all the threats they had received from the far right and hate groups. And that particular demonstration went a little sideways for the Rose City Nationalists because they wound up getting into a brawl with the Proud Boys, another far right group who was already there demonstrating. Um, and it was who, who could be more hateful? What, what, what was the brawl about? Uh, I I think there was just sort of uh, intergroup conflict okay. between like personal conflict is the the going hypothesis, but um, police ended up getting involved, kind of shut down and ended that demonstration. Um, but it was one instance in a string of actions this summer of neo-Nazis targeting pride events across the Pacific Northwest and Mountain West. Hmm. So these Rose City Nationalists, they are a part of something called the Northwest Nationalist Network. What is it? Yeah, earlier this year, a cohort of white supremacist and neo-Nazi groups formed the Northwest Nationalist Network. Um, They sort of had their coming out, I guess, in February when a Washington-based group joined the Rose City Nationalists and flew a banner over Interstate 5 in southwest Portland. Uh, The next day, they announced the network. Today, there are six groups from Oregon, Washington, and Montana in there. Um, And again, these are neo-Nazi groups, you know, sifting through their social media they share this adoration for Hitler and the Nazi regime, this, again, this open disdain for anyone who isn't white, straight, cisgender, and Christian. At the heart of this new network and the effort to disrupt pride festivals are something called active clubs. What are they? So active clubs are, again, neo-Nazi groups um, who place an emphasis on physical fitness, uh, training, preparing for violence. Um, They were started by a guy named Robert Rundo in Southern California who took his inspiration from European far-right extremist groups. And he's been pretty influential in racist movements the past several years. As a side note, he was just arrested in Bucharest, extradited back to California, where he's facing federal riot charges from a street brawl he was in in 2017. Stephen Pickett is a researcher at the Western State Center. He described active clubs as basically racist fight clubs. It's essentially an ideology as well around getting fit and preparing essentially for street battles, which these groups see as kind of step one in the path towards uh, a race war. And you'll see this on their social media. They often post videos of them boxing and doing physical training. They've had large get-togethers of different clubs. Uh, they've gone camping, and they've had these big MMA cage fights. So it's, it's baked into their, to their program. What's the larger picture here? I mean, how widespread is this? Well, this particular network started uh, targeting small and newer Pride festivals back in May. 
the Big Sky Active Club uh, in Montana and members from at least one other group in Washington showed up in Bozeman, uh, where the community was holding their first Pride event in more than 10 years. One of the organizers there, Keldon Joyner, said it was, it was very scary. There were times when I had a megaphone pressed up against my ear with someone screaming pedophile and I was a faggot and a, an abomination to this world, etc. And I think like during that point of time, um, I definitely questioned like, is this, am I about to get beat up? Am I going to get shot? Is this my last breath? They showed up at a Pride Festival in Centralia, Washington, about an hour and a half north of here uh, in Portland. They went to the Wind River Pride Festival in Lander, Wyoming, a town of about 7,500 people. And then on June 24th, they were in both Oregon City, which we just spoke about, and Spokane. Um, this level of coordination and you know driving significant distances, crossing state lines, that is new. It's an escalation. But these groups aren't isolated to the Pacific Northwest. Active clubs have been around for a few years, and these networks are emerging in other parts of the U.S., including the South and the Midwest. How are all of these groups communicating these days? Uh, I'm, you know, it seems like Telegram is their favorite platform. That is a messaging app that lets individuals, uh, you can start a channel, a, basically like a huge group chat that other people can join and post messages, photos, videos, memes. Um, they can also forward those posts to other groups so information can spread very easily. Um, users can have public and private groups so that facilitates recruitment. Um, and that, that seems to be their primary method of sharing information and coordinating. <laughs> If you're just tuning in, we're talking right now about coordinated efforts by neo-Nazi groups to disrupt LGBTQ pride events in the Northwest. Jonathan Levinson is a reporter for OPB. Why do these groups seem to be targeting pride events in particular right now? That's a good question. Um, I haven't seen anything explicit from the groups that says, you know, why they're targeting pride events or how they're choosing the events that they are targeting. Um, Again, they unapologetically hate LGBTQ people. Uh, this network formed in February, and Pride Month likely presented an easy target for them. Um, the mainstream conservative movement is also putting a lot of attention on LGBTQ rights, uh, particularly trans people. So that might influence where active clubs are directing their efforts. What are the explicit goals of these groups? Uh, white nationalists want to establish a white ethnostate, uh, a country defined by its white racial identity. Uh, active clubs are certainly white supremacists. They want to restore some vague notion of you know, American European culture, a return to their understanding of Christian values. Um, they embrace this idea that the white race is being replaced and they need to take action in order to save white people. We maybe heard a little bit of this in the tape you played um, from from Joyner, one of the organizers of of a Pride festival. But how do these groups use intimidation or threats of violence to instill fear? Um, I think that's such a great question. We often hear in response to things, you know, like people holding a sign or saying offensive things, espousing hate, that you know that's protected speech. And usually it is, but that doesn't mean it doesn't instill fear, like your question suggests. It doesn't mean that it isn't traumatizing or that there isn't a lasting impact on the targeted communities. Um, these hate groups know that. They are out there to send the message that, uh, you know, we're in your community and that you aren't welcome. Again, Stephen Piggott, the expert we just heard from, said a success for these groups would be for them to cancel their Pride event next year, to push the LGBTQ community back into the closet. Um, an organizer I spoke to in Oregon City said that it's it's just exhausting, you know, going out to the grocery store or around seeing people who are literally protesting her right to exist. Um, but if the goal is to do that, to push them, you know, back into the closet, it doesn't seem to have worked. Montana uh, had their state Pride Festival this past weekend, and Oregon City is planning a much larger festival in September. Hmm. 
You, you mentioned the First Amendment. How much of what we're talking about here is considered protected speech in the Constitution? Yeah, hate speech isn't defined in U.S. law, but it is generally understood to be you know any verbal, written, other forms of communication that attack or denigrate people based on who they are, um, their race, gender, ethnicity, religion, their identity. Federal courts have repeatedly upheld that it is generally protected by the First Amendment, and those protections do end if speech actively incites violence or creates danger. But you know, again, the Supreme Court has said that hateful, offensive speech does not meet that threshold. Hmm. These groups um, in recent months have been targeting LGBTQ events in in smaller cities and in rural areas, places where a lot of people in the queer community might already feel under political attack. What has the response been? Um, it's varied. In Lander, Wyoming, organizers said the mayor didn't speak out after the event, and they really wanted a forceful statement rejecting hate from city leadership. They didn't get one. Uh, in Oregon City, I was told that some business owners had sort of made bigoted complaints ahead of the event. There were apparently some hateful remarks made in some of the planning meetings with businesses. Uh, but organizers there were surprised how helpful the police were, uh, both leading up to and during the event. And in Centralia, the mayor and two counselors were at the event. When the neo-Nazis showed up, the mayor canceled plans with out-of-town family in order to stay, partly you know, to send the message that Centralia is a welcoming community, and they need to continue to do that. Is the response to these groups as coordinated as and mobilized as the groups themselves? I think there are a lot of ways to look at that. Um, First, we're talking about communities that are often having their first Pride event, or are, it's, a, it's not an entrenched tradition. Um, and I think that's a success and a product of years of organization and mobilization. Um, these groups are scary, but they are still quite small. Uh, it is easier for them to seem highly coordinated. Um, I also think anytime hate groups show up in public and take up space, um, there's a very understandable tendency to say, like, you know, oh God, like, how is this allowed to happen? There are, you know, there are neo Nazis pushing their views uh, on the streets in my town. Surely someone somewhere isn't doing something, isn't doing enough, uh, you know, organizing, mobilizing, educating. Um, but there are organizers, there are advocates and just everyday people who show up and let their presence speak for itself, who are pushing back against these groups and making it very known that they are not welcome. So um, that happens in big metropolitan cities. But as we've talked about, it is also happening in Centralia and Lander and Oregon City. Jonathan, thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Jonathan Levinson is a reporter for OPB. Finally today, our senior producer, Allison Frost, joins me to read some of your recent feedback. Hey, Allison. Hey, Dave. Well, the city of Portland recently announced that they will not renew their contract with the Regional Arts and Culture Council. The nonprofit has been distributing arts grants for the city for nearly 30 years. Sarah left us this voicemail. It's a real disappointment. I find that it's in line with what's happening right now. Our city commissioners are operating in a vacuum without engaging with many of the people doing the great work here in, in this city. And uh, we need for our city commissioners, rather than to co-op the great work that's happening, the city needs to stay in their lane. They need to focus on providing an environment where organizations like RAC and where our citizens and small businesses too can, can thrive Kat Enyart wrote on Facebook, This is heartbreaking. RAC Grants funded multiple projects I had the good luck to work on, and they're a vital resource for independent artists working to create art in the Northwest outside the mass market. Another listener emailed, 28 years of some of the aesthetically worst public art in the country. Bye-bye, RAC. 
Recently, we talked about several recent closures in Oregon's craft beer scene and whether the beer bubble has burst. Jason Crowder wrote, I love that there are a lot of choices to visit. Unfortunately, over the years, big beer has bought up a lot of our craft breweries. Others now offer seven different types of IPAs and sours. It's hard to find an independent local brewer who enjoys experimenting and offers a wide variety of styles like stouts and box. Abby Farber disagreed. She wrote, I love the huge variety, not just IPAs anymore. We talked to a Beaverton City Councilor recently about his city's decision to do away with minimum parking requirements for new construction. That follows seven other cities that made the same choice. The conversation generated a lot of pushback. Larry Terrell wrote, I live in the Selwood Westmoreland neighborhood of Portland, and in recent years, none of the new high-density residential buildings have provided parking spaces. The outcome, in terms of increased traffic, drastically reduced street parking, and unfortunately, reckless driving, has significantly decreased the quality of life. Our neighborhood is no longer the safe, comfortable walking neighborhood it used to be. Susan Nelson wrote, We absolutely need to reduce our greenhouse gases, but building multifamily dwellings with no ability for the residents to cheaply pay for electricity overnight is condemning apartment dwellers to use gas guzzlers or condemning them to have to sit at public charging stations when their more affluent neighbors can charge cheaply overnight. If we insist on no private parking spaces for our multifamily residences, what we build today is setting the stage for increasing the income gap. Marcy wrote, as a senior in my 70s with some growing mobility problems who lives in McMinnville, I have real concerns about going to Portland or Beaverton because parking is so hard to find within a block or two of where I'm going. Have you tried wheeling a chair even a block? Try going grocery shopping with a cane using transit. How do you get yourself, your cane, and your groceries home from the transit stop? Before you start talking about Uber, Lyft, or delivery services, notice that these cost money. Marcy continued, let's face it, existing cities are structured around an automobile. The cost of living close to the amenities of culture and parks and so-called walkable communities leaves only the top 5% of the population able to afford it. Until and unless structural changes are made to the architecture of cities, eliminating mandatory parking will only magnify the differences between the haves and the have-nots and continue to marginalize seniors and handicapped community members. Finally, last week we talked about the so-called 90-day reset effort in Portland's Central East Side Industrial District. Leah wrote, The loudest business organizations in the Central East Side and Old Town Business District can readily get the ear of city council to amass resources to clean up their neighborhoods and remove homeless encampments. And all of those unhoused folks moved further up into the East Side, encroaching on residential neighborhoods along Southeast Powell and other thoroughfares. This is just a displacement of the same problem now impacting kids around Cleveland High School instead. Leah continued, I don't think that the reset should in any way be considered a success since all it did was scrub graffiti and move the real root of the problem up the street. The Central East Side didn't advocate for real housing solutions. They just mildly accepted a temporary housing encampment at the edge of the district and swept the bulk of encampments further east. This is not a success or a solution. We always welcome your comments and questions and suggestions. Our voicemail number is 503-293-1983. And you can also email us. Our address is thinkoutloud at opb.org. And on Facebook, we're at OPBTOL. Thanks, Allison. Thank you, Dave. 
If you don't want to miss any of our shows, you can listen on the NPR One app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Our nightly rebroadcast is at 8 p.m. Thanks very much for tuning in to Think Out Loud on OPB and KLCC. I'm Dave Miller. Have a great day. Think Out Loud is supported by Steve and Jan Oliva, the Rose E. Tucker Charitable Trust, and Michael, Kristen, Andrew, and Anna Kern. Thank you.